Hello and welcome to STP Talks, a series of conversations with academics, authors and public intellectuals. I'm William Clouston, leader of the Social Democratic Party. My guest today is entrepreneur and economist John Mills. John is a prominent member of the Labour Party, its largest individual donor. He is also a prominent Eurosceptic of the left, who took a leading role in Vote Leave and Labour Leave in the 2016 EU referendum campaign. We discuss the British economy, the importance of increasing manufacturing and of reducing the trade deficit. We touch on ways this can be achieved, in particular, the importance of having a competitive exchange rate. Enjoy the show. Welcome, John. Yeah, pleasure to be with you. Now, um, you've just authored a a new book uh, on economics called um, The Elephant in the Room. So the first question I'd like to ask is, what is the elephant in the room? I think the elephant in the room is really competitiveness and the exchange rate, what the, uh, the, 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 the sort of prices we charge the rest of the world for manufactured goods, which uh, I think are far too high. And I think that's an exchange rate problem because what we've done is to concentrate over the last 40 years, particularly on driving down inflation. And we've done this by having very high interest rates and restricted money supply and all this kind of thing, all of which has driven the exchange rate up and up and up. The result has been that we've deindustrialized to a massive extent. Even as late as 1970, about a third of the UK's GDP came from manufacturing. Now it's less than 10%. Our share of world trade has gone down and down and down. And the result is that the economy has grown much more slowly. So the elephant in the room really is the exchange rate. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Certainly we, we agree with you that the... Um the decline in manufacturing has been astonishing if you take the full scope from the 70s through the Thatcher era and beyond. And uh, people tend to blame Thatcher for deindustrialization, but in fact, it's a process that continued into the major governments in the new Labour era. Um, and now, we, as you say, we're down at 10%. I mean, what do you think, I mean, your, 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 your basic case is that this can't be addressed unless it's addressed via the, uh, the, the, the exchange rate. That's the key. Would you say that's the key policy platform you have? It, it's part of it. I mean, what I do think is that you will never get uh, investment up. And investment's absolutely key to getting the growth rate up. And you will never get investment up, particularly in areas like mechanization and technology and the use of power, which were the ones that really deliver high increases in output per hour. You'll never get them up unless they're profitable. And the, I think the main reason why they're not profitable in the UK and therefore don't happen is because the exchange rate is too high. And what I think we need is an exchange rate that makes it profitable to site new industrial projects in the UK rather than elsewhere, which is not what's happening at the moment. And you look at sort of dollar parity, don't you? That's, the, that's something that you you say it would be about right to assist this process? Well, I think the, the trouble with the UK economy is that it's very much orientated towards the service sector and services aren't very price sensitive. And we've got quite a lot of natural advantages in services which we don't have in manufacturing. Uh, for example, uh, you know, our universities, our language, our geography, our skilled labor force, all this sort of thing. And the, the economy sort of dances to the service tune where exchange rates of $1.40 or $1.50 to the pound work perfectly well. These are lethal for manufacturing, where much lower exchange rates are required. And the evidence for this, the overwhelming evidence, is the deindustrialization which has taken place. You know, people just react to incentives. 
if there was a reasonable prospect of making money out of investment in the UK uh, with the investment in technology and power and so on, that's what people would do. But if there's no profitability there, people just won't do it. But isn't isn't the the origin of this partly? I mean, I suppose the exchange rate thing is a prescriptive thing and it's a technical thing. But the isn't the 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 cause of deindustrialization partly just the 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 uh, basic uh, econ liberalism that we've had the last sort of forty years? In that the, a lot of our political class and some in the academy as well think that um, so you know the, the balance between manufacturing and services doesn't really matter. And they think that you know services are just as good as manufacturing. Why fuss about manufacturing? It's a point that's made quite a few times. Do you think they've basically made an error in that? Well, I think manufacturing is very important uh, for four major reasons. One is that it's much easier to get productivity increases in manufacturing than it is in services. The second is that on the whole, but, uh, manufacturing pays better. The jobs are better in manufacturing. We produce about 10% of our GDP with 8% of our labor force involved in manufacturing. So productivity in manufacturing is about 25% higher on average than it is in services. We're gonna rebalance our economy and give areas outside London and the university town a break. I think the only real way of doing this is by getting manufacturing back. You're never gonna do that with, with services. And then finally, we've got a huge balance of payments deficit every year running up to a hundred billion pounds a year. And the only way we're ever gonna get that back under control is by selling more goods abroad. So there are very strong arguments for having uh, a, a higher share of the GDP coming from manufacturing than we have at the moment. And to get the economy back to any sort of balance, I think you need to get manufacturing back to at least 15% of GDP. And you need to do that, I think. I think that could be done over a five or 10 year period. Yeah, I, 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 one of the best chapters in the book, I think, is on global imbalances. But you, you're mentioning there basically national imbalances. You, you know, to have um, macroeconomic policy uh, geared and run for the benefit of London, the southeastern services, and and therefore not taking adequate consideration for manufacturing and the regions, you you've ended up with a political problem, haven't you? Which actually you could argue you could link it to the to the Red Wall. I mean, to some extent. Labour's difficulties in the Red Wall could be cultural, you know, you could argue that, but certainly across the West, we've had uh, deindustrialized cities, which used to be, you know, in the States used to be Democrats and have turned Republican and so on. That's, do you think that's, do you think there's a political price to pay in terms of inequality and social unrest? Well, yes, I think there is, and I entirely understand it, that, uh, you know, large areas of the United States and the UK, and not just in the UK and the States either, I mean, this also applies to a lot of the European Union too, what you've got is economies which are very unbalanced, uh, where deindustrialization has proceeded apace, where you've got all these low productivity service sector jobs, uh, which really don't contribute much at all to economic growth, and a huge amount of discontent as a, a, a result. And I think the parties of the left, and I think this includes the Labour Party in this country, have been thrashing around trying to find solutions to this problem uh, and find it very difficult to do so. Yeah, I think this, it is a major problem. I think the, I think basically it's I, as I, say, I, I, I pin the blame partly on a, a type of a way of thinking which our political class has taken on and imbibed, uh, which is just complete indifference to manufacturing and anyone can make it and we should be survive on services. But you make the point entirely. Actually, the British economy uh, has a, quite a good record on on employment. 
um, you know, we, we compared, certainly compared with um, major European um, powers, we, we have lower unemployment. But if you look at the quality, as you say, the quality of, of job and the, um, the security that people have from the job and the actually amount they get paid, a lot of that's been hollowed out. And the hollowing out has coincided with, the, with, with, with exporting our manufacturing firms. Well, I, I, think that, I think that's right. I think part of the reason why investment has been so low in this country is because there has been a very large amount of cheap but willing labour around, and that's rather discouraged investment. Um, and, you know, it's, it's all part of where the incentives lie to get investment to take place. And, you know, if you, you're back to the same old problem. If you can't make it pay, it won't happen. Yeah. I mean, your, your point about the, the availability of labour, I think, is a very impressive. And, and, and to go back to, I mean, I, you know, in the introduction, I mentioned your role in, in 2016 and uh, the Labour Leave campaign. Of course, the, the idea that being part of an unlimited labour market that might have 400 you know, million uh, people in it uh, isn't necessarily in the interests of um, what would be regarded as Labour's uh, core, core vote. But that's, that's a slightly separate uh, question. Um, you mentioned, we talked about national imbalances, but I, as I say, one of the best parts of the book, I think, is talking about global imbalances. And I think yeah, what, you're what you're illustrating is this, this indifference to persistent trade deficits and the implications um, of those. Could you just run through that for us, please? Yes, I, mean, I think what happened was that um, in the 1970s and 1980s, when inflation really took off in the West, the reaction was interest rates up to very high levels to squeeze it down and the effect of all this was to make it much more expensive to produce more as anything in manufacturing in the west than it was in the east and so what you said is globalization coming into effect at the same time but this really led the benefits of globalization very much to be realized in the east rather than the west and you know i, I think that if you look at the uh, increase in living standards in places like China, but they've been enormous over the last few years. And, you know, that's benefited humanity as a whole, but at the expense of people who were previously employed in manufacturing in the West, particularly in the United States and the UK, who've been left with, uh, with, with their jobs all disappearing. And hardly surprisingly, this has caused a huge amount of discontent and uh, political instability, which I think is likely to persist unless something is done about it. But it's also, I mean, you, you, there's a wonderful chart in the, in the book, which um, actually shows the details, the liabilities which have been built up as a result of constantly running these uh, deficits. And it's odd because, I mean, both of us are old enough to remember uh, the, uh, a, a political environment where, uh, you know, uh, trade deficits and, and the balance of payments certainly would, would have been on the political issue, uh, on the political horizon you know and it was that there were major political issues and, and and for some reason it's been taken off the agenda but as you say in the book what you're doing is building up liabilities which in the end uh it's doubtful whether some of these will actually be repaid do you think that's a fair appraisal i, I think that is absolutely right uh, and i think there's there's a force for very substantial instability there um, i mean as long as everybody goes on believing that uh, these debts will eventually be paid the world goes on going round but i mean if confidence starts breaking and in particular I think the European Union is very vulnerable on all this because it's got no central bank in the same way that uh, is aligned with the national interest that we have here 
think there are real dangers that uh, you finish up with another really serious crisis and then massive amounts of debt, which has largely been created to try and get people to spend money. And this is part of the reason why we've got low levels of unemployment, because uh, there's very low rates of interest that encourage people to spend money. But it's not a stable way ahead for the future. It's not a balanced way of running the economy. And it's liable, therefore, to cause crisis in the future if we're not very careful. No, I agree with that. I think it's, it's, it's tremendously important. And I think, I think in the end, it will lead to crisis. I think a lot, of, uh, a lot of these problems are caused by politicians not really being honest with the public and being, being frank about what we, what we can earn. You know, we, we, we can only, in the long run, spend what we've earned. But that's, that's a separate point. Um, one of the other consequences of, of the, the globalization we've had over the last 20, 30, 40 years uh, which I'm interested in is the tendency for manufacturing and industrial supplies to be concentrated by fewer but larger producers. Uh, you know, so you, China, some of the some of the uh, manufacturers of basic commodities, basic uh, consumer goods, are extremely large producers. And there's an extent to which um, this centralization has, has actually made the world uh, more fragile. And uh, do you think the pandemic has has, has been a, a demonstration of that fragility? Well, I think it has. I mean, I think it was a real wake-up call that uh, this country was just incapable of producing ventilators, incapable of producing PPE to help the National Health Service when the crisis came, and also, uh, you know, our capacity for producing uh, vaccination. The vaccines is pretty limited as well, uh, and it's all because our, our, our industrial base has been eroded. And I think people are now beginning to realise that these very long supply chains very dependent on, on countries which are not necessarily going to be your friends, times get tough, it's not the way to go. So I think there may well be a resilience back from the enormous the, the proportion of GDP going through exports and imports that we've seen recently to something that's a bit more balanced. And a bit more spread. I mean, I think it's a point Keynes would make, you know, that if you can produce something domestically, you probably ought to. And um, it, of course, if you had, if you had a more you know, industrial uh, production was spread rather than concentrated in this way, then I think it would be slightly more resilient. I, um, I, I, was, I was on a panel, um, a debate with the, at the IA a couple of weeks ago, and I debated a free trade liberal um, who, was, who, who said that I, he said that my, my desire to have uh, the country re-industrialize, say up to 15% of GDP, he accused me of being a romantic. <laughs> and now I just wonder, um, do you think that, the, the free trade liberalism, the idea of having complete free trade um, globally, do you think that's rather romantic, rather utopian? I, I think it is, but also, I mean, there's this very interesting figures that have been produced in research in, in the United States about what the benefits from trade actually really are. And uh, as measured against GDP generally, their estimate is that the average across the world is that the, all the benefits that you get from international trade as opposed to just having every country being, or certainly every large country just looking after itself, is about two and a half percent. Now, two and a half percent is a very low figure compared to world GDP, which is growing at something like four percent per annum. Um, but the damage that's been done by the imbalances which you referred to just now uh, is, is enormous, particularly among working people right across the West. And so I think we paid a very heavy political price and social price for the benefits that have come from the, the uh, globalization we've seen, which actually aren't as great as a lot of people think they are. 
I, I totally agree with that. But I think also, um, I think the other reason that it's slightly utopian um, is that it, they, the, the, the ultra liberal, the sort of globalist neo, neoliberal is very, is very um, they play down the possibility that um, one of your major trading partners might suddenly disagree with you and, and weaponize the trade itself. And it's, it's a point I've made uh, a few times that a state like Australia is recently over the last couple of years has, has, has been through this process where their major trading partner, China, has slapped on uh, tariffs and other restrictions um, as a result of a political disagreement. Now, again, it's a point I'd make to um, uh, ultra free trade liberals that this doesn't seem to have occurred to them. It doesn't seem to have occurred to them that actually um, that makes your state slightly less resilient. And, and, and there's, no there's, there's no reason why um, this won't happen, particularly if we have disagreements with, with China on, on political matters. Do you think that's, that's a fair appraisal as well? Well, I think it is, but I think also there's another big international development dimension to all this whole issue about economic growth, which is that if you've got China growing at six or seven percent per annum and doubling its standard of living every roughly 10 years, whereas the West is more or less static. And I think it's a real danger, just to digress for a second, that we're going to finish up in 2030 with living standards no higher than they were in 2019 or even 2007. So you're going to, the whole generation with no increase in living standards, while they're doubling every 10 years in China. What's that going to do to the world balances in terms not only of uh, economics, but uh, in terms of ideology? You know, what are people going to think? What's the political implication of all this going to be? You know, in, in China, even now, they're producing far more engineers than we are in the West. They're producing far more patents. Um, you know, they've done a lot, some things really very well. I mean, the control of coronavirus has been obviously much more effective in a lot of these Eastern countries. You know, we're in real danger of getting left behind in the slow lane if we don't get something done to, to improve our performance. So I think it's a big international development, development uh, context about all this that we really need to address. Do you think part of the problem in the West, though, has been um, just too much naivety about the strategic importance of some of these, uh, these, these you know, uh, jobs and these factories uh, in terms of you know, the, the large corporation of the, in the West, in the United States and here is very sort of anywhere in its attitudes. It seems to be not quite as rooted. I mean, if you look at uh, South Korean corporations, uh, in I mean, obviously they, they, they have factories abroad, but they, their priority is national as well. They seem to be linked in a greater way, a more uh, attached way to their, their home state than some of our corporations. Do you think that's a fair criticism? Yes, I think it is. And I think one of the problems about this country is that you've got no really strong manufacturing pressure group like you've got in Germany, the Mittelstand, for example. And the same sort of thing applies in, in Singapore and Korea and Japan, all these successful manufacturing countries. Uh, you know, in this country, the industry has had such a rough time over such a long period of time. And then it's been so difficult to attract really able people to go into industry. I, mean, I was at university. Apparently, none of the people I was there with went into industry. They all went into anything really else. Uh, they went into PR. They went into uh, the civil service. Uh, they went you know, anything except the making and selling things. You know, you just finish up with an, an economy which just hasn't got the same sort of get up and go 
in the industrial side as we have. And I think we're suffering greatly from the fact that that uh, this has happened in the UK. I think it would be much better if industry and, and had a higher sort of social status. But as long as it's struggling for profitability, it will never do so. Yeah, I think there is a cultural issue there, certainly. And I think on the supply side, um, David Goodhart has put out a book at the end of last year, Head, Hand and Heart, which focuses on the supply side failures in terms of government. I mean, what they've done is basically overextend um, and expand the university sector, and they've uh, totally neglected basic skills training, which would have been very, very useful actually for manufacturing, but has been has not been prioritized. Prioritized. Do you think that's a fair criticism of government policy over the last twenty years? Uh, I do indeed. I mean, I've read David uh, Goodhart's book, and you know, I've very much agree with his thesis. I mean, actually, what's happened over the last ten years is that um, if you look at the money that's been spent on education and training. Uh, education has actually done relatively well, and our r rankings on the PISA tables have improved slightly. What has really been the Cinderella has been training, particularly technical training, which has gone down by something close to 1% of GDP over the last 10 years. It's one of the sort of areas where, where austerity and cuts hit really pretty hard. And we've now spent less money as a proportion of GDP on training of just about anybody else in the G7, which is a shocking record. And it's gonna make it more difficult to get manufacturing back on its feet. If you know, we're really lacking in engineers and plumbers and bricklayers and all these other trades that are so important from a technical standpoint. So I think the one thing we really need to reverse is that cut in training. We do need to reverse it, but I think, do you agree that the cause of that uh, neglectful, indifferent attitude towards basic skills was was partly a tendency for previous governments to lean on uh, on the freedom, freedom of movement in the EU. I mean, basically, the slack was taken uh, by, by freedom of movement. And if British industry needed or wanted someone, then they tended to get them from that. But of course, we would argue as social democrats that what the government was doing there was uh, letting down their fellow citizens because actually British people needed training as well. Well, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, if you look at the National Health Service, another slightly uh, different but related factor, I mean, the proportion of doctors in the National Health Service who are trained abroad is incredibly high. I think it's something like 25%. I mean, it's an amazingly high figure. Uh, and, you know, some of these doctors were trained in much poorer countries in the UK. And, you know, what we're doing, sort of plucking people out of uh, poorer countries who can ill afford their training to bring them over here because we don't, Want to spend any money on getting them uh, trained up for the well, domestic population trained up very much the same applied to nurses i think it's a shocking indictment of what's happened here yeah there's certainly no moral case whatsoever for doing that it's uh, it's been appalling um can i just finish by asking you a, a sort of more a broader point um we we describe ourselves as keynesians and uh, and and obviously as social democrats but the, the one of the things that has always puzzled me john is the is the is the extent to which the the, the basically the move towards Thatcherism and then after um, the economics that we've had uh, post seventy nine um, the the people that um, sing its praises have been able to do so actually in in the face of the facts <laughs> because if you look at productivity if you look at um, growth and investment and employment actually the Keynesian period 
was rather better than it than it's painted. Would you would you agree with that? Well, I certainly would do. I and mean, if you look at the quarter of a century after World War Two, the growth rate across the Western world was about three percent per annum. The second, the last quarter of a century in the uh, the last uh, century, it would drop down to about two percent. The first part of the twenty uh, first century it dropped down to about one and a half percent, and I think it's now going to drop to about one percent. I mean, it's just gone down and down and down. And I think there's a very clear reason for this, which was that uh, when inflation really hit us in the twenty in the nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties, there was huge concentration on getting it down. Everybody obsessed on getting it to two percent or somewhere like that, and just lost sight. Of what the implications are going to be on competitiveness and the result of all this is that west and that it's not just a uk problem or a us problem it's a problem right across the west has just got so uncompetitive with the east that they're bumping ahead growing much much faster than we are and leaving so many areas of our population without any decent jobs at all so i mean i think that the the i mean interestingly keynes himself was never really uh, particularly obsessed with growth, he was much more concerned about um, full employment and 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 macroeconomic stability. Uh, but I mean, there's no doubt about the fact that the implications of what he did in the 1930s and 40s was to produce a much better outcome for the uh, period immediately following World War II. Uh, but now we've allowed it to slip away and slip away by you know fixating on inflation rather than anything else, and the results I think are appalling. Yeah, I mean, I, certainly it's, it's staggered me how um, how the the sort of neoliberal turn has been able to paint its its record in a different way than the the ONS and all the other stats um, show it. It's been astonishing, really, active PR, but it's 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 not really very well. Um, doesn't co correspond to reality, I'm afraid. Um, yeah, I mean, it, my colleague and friend uh, uh, Kevin Hickson has just published a book. On, on Jim Callahan, and there's been a lot of reassessment and actually it comes out in that book actually, the, 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 the hammering that um, he took, um, if you look at the actual facts and the data, the record is far better than, than, than is, is, is um, popularly explained you know, by, by our political opponents anyway. Um, it's very interesting and I, I'm astonished how they've got away with it. I think that's right, but I think part of it is that uh, liberalization, uh, internationalism and all the rest that we've seen over the last few years does suit a section of the population extremely well. They've opted to travel, do interesting jobs, earn large sums of money. The trouble is that this has been bought at the expense of lots of the other sections of the population who have been done really badly out of it all. And I think the quite sharp divisions you see in society now, reflected in Brexit, reflected in the sort of way that politics are going in this country, uh, because a lot of people feel that they've been pretty hard done by, by the way the world's been run over the last 25 years, when you've got some sections of the population who just love what they've managed to achieve, who've done extremely well out of it all, and there's a feeling of unfairness around, which I think is very corrosive. I agree. I think the cultural divides, I mean, obviously we're aware of the cultural turn in politics generally, but the cultural divides, I think, largely reflect as exactly what you say, the, the two, two groups of people, um, some people have, been, have done very well out of globalization and some haven't done so well. But um, it, it's, 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 it's great to read a book actually that isn't the Council of, of Despair and is optimistic about our prospects to reindustrialize. And, and, uh, and I, I couldn't recommend the book uh, 
more highly. So I think if, if, if anyone is interested, the book is called The Elephant in the Room. Um, and uh, thank you very much, John, for being our guest today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode of STP Talks, a series of conversations with politicians, academics, authors, and public intellectuals. If you'd like to be updated when new episodes of STP Talks go live, make sure to subscribe or follow us on your podcast platform of choice. And if you're interested in learning more about the Social Democratic Party, do make sure to head over to our website at stp.org.uk. Thanks for listening.